Oh, boy. By the way, um, how cool that our worship leader this morning was a 16-year-old sophomore. Uh, this, I had to ask her because I'm like, are you a junior? She's like, no, I'm a sophomore. I'm like, wow, I was your youth pastor, and I couldn't even remember that because you seem so much older than that. But anyways, if you have gifts in this church, we put you to work. Like, it does, there is no barrier to entry, okay? So stop sitting on the sidelines and thinking you have nothing to offer. We have our teens offering stuff all over the place. Our kids, I mean, if you want to see something, watch Miles direct traffic with putting things away after church. He'll be like, no, that doesn't go there. He goes in, in bin three on the right side. On, you know, like, just watch. It's, this is the kind of church we're in. Um, and so I'm just trying to avoid what James is uh, dealing with. By, um, he's, we're going to get hit right in the mouth today, okay? This is a really tough passage, very tough passage. And I feel like sometimes, uh, you know, I, I, feel, I feel like every week I've been kind of apologizing or trying to uh, warm you up a little bit before we get to it. But James really has no quit in him. And in, for him, this is the way that he talks. Like, again, we're going to have a couple of those, like, uh, put it on a pillow, stick it on your, you know, or put it in a frame or send somebody. We're going to have a couple of those verses today that, like, if you were to actually put this on a pillow, it'd be awesome, right? Like, you adulterous people, you. Just go ahead and stitch that onto a pillow and stick it in your living room, see what happens, right? Um, and he gets started right away. He says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, so today we're dealing with conflict, okay? We're dealing with where does conflict come? And I think we have been trained, and if you're a good Minnesotan, you have figured out how to avoid conflict at all costs. If you enter into a conflict, it is because you have no other choice, okay? I know there's a lot of us who are in that, in that way. Now, I, I hail from the East Coast. I've had to learn your ways. I've, I came out here eight years ago. I had to become, figure out what it looks like to be a good Minnesotan, how not to bring conflict into everything. My family is one of those families that, like, we fight it out, we hug it out. That's how it goes. Nobody holds any grudges. Like, we say what we think, then we slug it out, literally. Me and my brother might actually once in a while slug it out. Like, that's how it goes. I remember when my wife and I first got married, we went did Christmas with my family. This is one of, like, the, you know, this big opportunity. It was my brother and, and uh, his family. It was me and my wife, and then it was my parents' And we were playing poker, and it ended in a scuffle, okay? The, the poker game ended in a scuffle between me and him. And it was mostly because he is not an honorable person, and he did, he did something in that game that deserved the scuffle. But anyways, at some point after it was over, and like we had kind of talked things out, and, uh, and it's, a, it's sometimes a tough um, uh, thing for our family dynamic when me and my brother and my mom are all together because the three of us are the truth tellers in the family, and we just sometimes don't care. We just say what needs to be said, and sometimes it causes the conflict. We bring it upon ourselves, and I realized after the scuffle and after we had kind of worked things out um, and hugged it out, I realized my wife was nowhere to be found. Like, where is she? Where'd she go? And I'm like, wait, where's... And I went back to the bedroom that we were staying in, and she's in the bedroom just like almost like visibly shaking, like almost like um, almost weeping because of the intensity of what had just happened. And I was like, oh, no, that was just a conversation for us. <laughs> I was like, it's going to get much worse. Like, this is just the very beginning. So we got to talk about this. And we realized early on in our marriage that like in her family, right, the conflicts got dealt with very silently and they got dealt with over a long period of time where people tended to not forget things for a very long period of time. 
And in my family, conflicts got dealt with immediately, sometimes with yelling, and often it was over in a very short, it was kind of a blast, and then we wrote through it, and neither of those were awesome. Neither of those were healthy, okay? So we had to learn what it looks like to have conflict in our marriage and in our family at that point, and we had to sit down and have some conversations about like, okay, when I yell, you shut down. This isn't good. And when you have something that you don't tell me, then I feel that tension, and we had to work on coming together and figuring out what conflict looked like in our marriage. The thing about conflict is you are not going to be able to avoid it. You have to figure out how to deal with it. I mean, the way James frames the question is what causes fights and quarrels among you? Like, it's going to happen. It's part of your life. You can either, you know, uh, do the, you know, blow up in the conflict or you can hold on to it for an extended period of time. Neither of those things are good for you, right? Neither of those things. He's going to show us in a minute. Both of those things come from a place that isn't really great. It's not something that would serve us. It's not what Jesus has called us, how he's called us to live. And so he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? And I think if we were being honest, we would say, they do. Them, those people, that guy who cut me off, that obnoxious family member that I just can't get away from, right? That, that relationship at work that just continues to cause conflict. We would say, being selfish sometimes, that if you asked us where those fights and quarrels come from, they come from them, they're the ones that start it. They do it. It's all on them. I do maintain that that fight about poker was my brother's issue. Um, and you'd say to me, dude, if only you knew what they did, right? You would say that this conflict is okay or this anger that I'm holding is fine or this, you know, this, um, where I'm holding this grudge against somebody that it would be okay because you don't know what they did. They did something to me. They deserved this conflict. They deserved the way that I re- responded. We We've all got those things. We've all got to figure that out. And we've got to figure out what happens to us when we're disrespected, right? When we're marginalized, when we are challenged, our pride is challenged, when we are in um, a no-win situation with somebody, when we're in a situation with somebody who doesn't even have our best interests in mind. We've got to figure out what it looks like and how we respond in those kinds of situations, because those are the things that will cause the fights and the quarrels. Those are the things that will cause the conflict that we have to deal with. And I think James is going to kind of reset the way that we look at it. So we would say, where do those fights and quarrels come from? They come from them. That's not how James looks at it. Look what he says. He says, no, no, they come from you. You desire, but you do not have. So you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. James says, um, forget about them for a second. Let's talk about you. Like, none of us wants that answer. Like, if you come in and, you know, it's like, uh, like a conflict in your marriage, and we sit down and have a conversation about it, and we start to talk about it, both people want to blame the other person for the conflict. Rarely does somebody step back and say, here's what I can own in this situation. In fact, if both people were willing to step back and say, here's what I can own in this situation, generally we don't find ourselves in that situation where the marriage is broken. That actually selflessness is the thing that causes us to really stay in a relationship for a long period of time. This just isn't just a marriage thing. It's a relationship thing. It's with our families. It's with the coworkers that we have to deal with every single day. When we step back and say, what's going on inside of me? Let me look at what's happening in me first. Let me be focused on what's going on in my own heart and mind, right? We can kind of control what we're bringing to the table. 
That's what James is saying. He's saying, look, this conflict comes from you. It comes from your desires or passions. It comes from your, um, your desire to your own pride, your own desire to have people respect you or honor you, your own uh, desire to have people treat you in a certain way. It's like they come, it comes from, from you. And it turns, it goes from pride or it goes from a situation where your desires and passions are driving you towards this conflict to a place of jealousy. It says you covet because you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight with other people. And I don't know if you've thought about this, but like this is a, a, real, a real thing. Like I, I know I was trying to think the other day, I, I was like, okay, as I was writing this message, I was thinking, all right, I know what I was jealous of people of when I was younger. Right? It was mostly stuff. Right? It was like, this guy, this kid has an Xbox, I don't. Th- this family takes really uh, extravagant vacations, you know, I, I don't. Um, I-, I remember thinking, I know this is going to really put me like way back, but like cable was like a new thing when I was like a young teenager. And I remember thinking like there were some kids in our school who had cable and others who didn't. I remember thinking like, man, I wish we had cable. Like there was, these were the things that I was jealous of. Or they had a video game that I wanted, or they had... You know, uh, they had four-wheelers. I remember there was one kid down the street that had four-wheelers. He'd always come riding through our yard where I was just like, yeah, I know that your life is amazing and you're having a ton of fun. And my life stinks. I'm playing with a stick in the front yard. Like, leave me alone. And you know that we've added, I felt like it was a much simpler time. We've added a whole layer of jealousy for our teenagers now and our kids now. I mean, like, think about what they look they look at when they turn on social media. They get a curated version of somebody's life that looks amazing, right? And then they start comparing themselves, and they think, like, I'm jealous of that girl's friends. I'm jealous of this person's, uh, you know, status in the world, like her, how cool she is and the people she hangs out with. Or I'm jealous of that kid's, that guy's uh, athletic ability or his muscles. Or I'm jealous of her, you know, uh, her talent when it comes to, to singing or to theater or whatever. There, there's, now we're, we're essentially giving our kids a platform to take it from, like, physical stuff to, like, a realm of comparing and contrasting and being jealous of and coveting all the aspects of somebody else's life. Like, if you don't think this is more relevant today than it ever has been, like, it's unbelievable. And I think as adults, maybe we mature a little bit, but the stuff is still there, right? We say, like, man, like, I know I'm jealous of my neighbor's snowblower. Like, th- th- I'm just going to throw it out there. He's got one of those $900 ones that, like, he sits on or whatever. Like, and it's just, I mean, it's like, it can, you know, it does a swap. He does his driveway in three, three trips up and down. Like, it's unbelievable. Like, he should be clearing, like, like the snow at the mall parking lot, right? Like, or... um. You know, I don't know if you've thought about, if you've ever done this, but like you're on Facebook and you're kind of scrolling through and you, you notice like there's a picture of somebody, something at their house, and you just like, you just like zoom in on the picture to see the backsplash in their kitchen. <laughs> you're like, whoa, man, it's like, were they on HGTV? This kitchen looks amazing, right? The, the stuff changes, but we still have that feeling of being jealous or of coveting things, right? Or, or you've ever seen somebody bought a new house and you Google their neighborhood, and then you kind of look at the, the thing, and you kind of like, wow, that looks like a beautiful neighborhood. I wish my house, okay, just me, apparently. Um, <laughs> or um, you've watched that perfect little relationship of one of your friends go from dating to engaged. They got engaged in a gazebo with all the candles, and there was the video of it, and it's, you know, or to, to, to getting married where it was like this, in a barn, in a field, at sunset, right? Like, 
Then you watch them, like, as they start to have the perfect little family. They have, like, the cutest little boy and the cutest little girl. And now you're, like, there's some of us who are sitting there watching that stuff, and we're like, it's not that we want video games or Xbox or even money sometimes, but we're jealous of each other. We want what we see out there. We covet and are jealous of things. And this is the stuff that comes out of our own passions that causes us to then covet, and it causes fights and quarrels among us. You think you're so great, right? It's because they've given you a curated version of themselves on social media. Social media is a place where we just wipe away all the warts, right? You think that that perfect little marriage looks so beautiful, and what you find out is that it's actually a broken marriage, and these are people who are really struggling and considering getting divorced. Like, anybody who announces on social media that they've now just split or become divorced or, or their relationship, it's because it's been happening for years, and they've, no one's ever seen it. The social media stuff, it just kind of causes us to see this curated version. And we still covet. We still desire what we, what we want. And we fight and quarrel with each other because of our own jealousy in those relationships. And that's built around, it comes from our passions or our desires, what James says. He says, you have passions and desires in your own heart, things that drive you, things that you essentially want to define who you are, and you now have conflict with other people who have the things that are better than you. You know, if you want to solve this problem, stop comparing yourself to anybody. Like, comparison is a trap. It's, a, it's never going to lead you to where you want to be. Comparison is an evil thing that comes into our relationships and causes fights and quarrels and jealousy, and it's something we need to find a way as Christians to, to dump, to get rid of. So what does he say then? He goes, let me tell you why you don't have what you want. Let me just tell you. He says, you don't have because you don't ask God. He says, when you ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend on, you, that you spend what you get on your own pleasures, you adulterous people. Beautiful. Just a greeting card right there. He says, like, those pleasures that drive you, those things that you want, you don't have them because you don't ask God. And if you do ask God, you generally ask with the wrong motives because it's coming from a selfish place, from a place of want for your own pleasures, it's coming from a place where you're serving your own desires, your own passions. He says, you don't ask. Well, why don't we ask? I think there's, there's a couple of reasons why we don't ask. I think most people, we don't ask because we, like, I got this. Like, there's a pride in some of us, and I could speak as a man for a minute. Like, there's a pride inside of me that says, I can go out, and I can accomplish what I need to for my family, and I can take care of this thing and that thing and this other thing, and I can do these things, and I have pride in this sort of self uh, this lifestyle of me providing for people. That's an easy thing to get into, to have that kind of pride, right? You say, I got this. I don't need to ask God because I got this. I don't really want to inconvenience God with something that I could do myself, so I'm just not going to bring this request to God at all. James makes it really clear that when we need something, really important things, that we need to get them from God, not from around us. We talked about wisdom last week coming from God to us. Right? That peace that we want comes from God to us. The joy that we're looking for from God to us. You know, James says that, that, that God is the father of lights, that every good and perfect gift, it comes from him. Like, so if we're looking for something from within ourselves or around us in our world, we're not going to find what we're looking for. We might do it for a while or accomplish it somewhat, but if we're really looking for the important stuff, those things come from our relationship with God. And so we don't ask because we say we got this, because our pride keeps us 
from going to God and laying this thing at his feet and asking him to be the Lord over whatever the thing is that we're struggling with. You got this? You got this? How about eternity? None of us have that. Nobody's got that. The only person who has that is Christ. So yeah, maybe you're leading a great life and you're looking better than your neighbors, but that's not what Christ is calling us to. He's calling us to lay the whole thing down in front of him and to make him Lord of our lives and to receive the gifts that he wants to give us. I mean, you can have assurance of salvation today. You can know that you're in relationship with Christ today if you will lay aside your pride and say, I don't got this anymore. So that's one. Some, some of the reasons why we don't ask is, you know, we believe that asking um, is not going to change anything. Like somewhere along the line, we thought, like, I'm not going to ask God because I don't think it's going to change anything. I don't necessarily think I have faith that he's good, that he's got what I need, that he is in this with me. I feel like when I pray, it bounces off the ceiling, right? Like I, I put my heart and passion into this thing, and I prayed, and I asked God, and nothing. And so I don't even know if I believe that he's got this. And over and over and over in Scripture, we see that God is a father who wants to give good gifts to his children. We look at the person of Jesus, and we see the compassion that he has for, for his people, and you have to understand that God is looking at you like his child and he wants to enter into your life. And you can ask him and receive things from him in a way that you aren't even aware of. Right? Some of you are like, I've been asking, right? I've been asking God for this thing. I've been asking him and asking him. He doesn't seem to be interested in what I'm asking him for. Right? And James talks about that too. He says, well, what's your motivation when you're asking God? If you're looking at God like a formula where I put in the right, the right uh, inputs, and I receive the thing that I want, you've essentially turned God into a vending machine. You've said, I put in the $1.25, I push the right code, and out should pop the soda. Not pop, get out of here with that. Right? Like, I did it right. I punched in the stuff, I did the thing, and now the, this thing is broken. There's like no place where you feel injustice in your life. Like when you buy that pack of chips... And it hangs up in that last spot, right? But that's our faith. That's a lot of people's faith. Like, I put in the right stuff. I pushed the right buttons. I did the right thing. And now what? You didn't give me what I asked for. James says, you need to check your motives. Like, step back for a second and think about how you're asking and what you're asking for. You are in trouble when Jesus becomes your vending machine. You're in trouble when you look at him like he's there for you. Like you, he's your therapist that you can just go in and lay on the couch when you need him. And you can just punch in the codes when you need him. In fact, there's a, a lot of study that's been done on, the, on the, the religion of millennials and down. Right? I don't want to throw young people under the bus. But there is this thought out there that essentially God is there for us. That he's our cosmic therapist. That when I'm struggling, I go in, I sit on the couch, and he works things out, and I walk out, and I'm good. Or that he is our vending machine. Or that he is, we talked about this a couple weeks ago, he's our bouncer. He's supposed to keep all the bad things from happening in our life. And when you have a, a childish faith like that, not a childlike faith, a childish faith, a faith that's not developed, then guess what? The first moment you don't get what you ask for, then what happens? You say, well, maybe he doesn't exist, maybe he's not there, and I'm going to walk away from this whole thing. And that is not the kind of faith that we're called to have. We're called to have this relationship with this God who, yeah, we ask, we go and ask for whatever it is that we want, but we learn those motives and we start to ask for the, the things that are the Father's heart. 
We start to learn what he wants for us. We start to get in sync with him when it comes to that kind of stuff. Right. I, I think like this, this happens for me. I understand this differently now being a dad, right? Like my, my kids will get up and they'll ask me to have ice cream for breakfast every single day. And I say, <laughs> I think we know who the worst parent in the room is right now. Anybody? <laughs> imperfect church for imperfect people. Ben, you're welcome. I say, no, you can't have ice cream for breakfast. This is, this is, this is, I would be an irresponsible parent if I said yes. Right? But you know what are the kind of things that I'll never say no to? Right? Like in relationship with my kid. Hey, Dad, I need your advice on this. I'm not sure how to process this thing. Hey, Dad, I need your help with my homework. Hey, Dad, I need you to, I need you to pick me up from this place or to take me here or to be involved with it. Like those are places where I'll never say no, man. I want to be involved in my kid's life. I want to be there in those moments when he wants me. And I'm a failing dad. I'm a dad who's failable. I'm a human. God is the perfect father, and he wants to be there in those moments. And it's all based around relationship. He's like, invite me into this thing. You need wisdom? I'm here for you. You want joy? I'm here for you. Right? You, you're looking for peace in your life? Like, I'm going to provide that for you in relationship. Invite me into this thing and stop asking me for ice cream for breakfast. Right? James is saying, your passions, your desires are ruining your relationship with God because it's creating for you this thing where you think God is a million miles away and he's not connected and he's not giving you what you want. But you're asking for stuff that you don't want. Right? God knows the difference between these things. He's like a father who wants to give us amazing gifts. He's not here for our comfort. He's not here to protect us from bad things happening in the world. He's not here to provide on demand the things that we want like a vending machine. He's not here to support us like a therapist where we walk in and walk out when we're ready to have him in our lives. He is here to have a relationship with us. He showed us Christ that's what he looks like. That's who he is. And he wants to have a relationship with us, an ongoing relationship where we're learning how to pray and ask him for the things that we need. And he is like overjoyed to give us those things like any father would. And so he goes on. James says, you adulterous people. Man, that's brutal. I, I put it in two different slides just to accentuate it. He says, you are cheating on me. Like, just stop for a second. Like, if you were a husband who, like, just went down the road and hired a prostitute, that's what he's saying to you. You are cheating on me. Your relationship with me is split. It's going in two different directions. You're serving yourself and your passions and your desires and the things that you want, and you're trying to serve me at the same time, and these two things, they don't go together. This is like... Uh, he's been saying this the whole time. It's like the, these two things are incongruent with each other. You are an adulterous person when you try to do that. He says, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? He says, he says like, you are an adulterous person and don't you understand you have two choices. You could choose to go in this direction or this direction. And if you try to put your feet in both places, it will tear your world apart. You cannot do it. You can either have me and serve me, or you can have the world and serve the world. And I, 
I want to step back and just uh, define world because I think sometimes we think like of the people in the world. When he's talking about world, he means the, the worldview that you have and who you are serving. The culture, are you serving the culture? Are you getting your cues from the world around you, the, the, the prevailing way of thinking, the political uh, realm that you, you see around you, the, the, the pressure of the culture around you to control you? Or are you getting the way that you think from God? Is it, it's one or two of these things. He's saying you can have one or you can have the other. Now listen, uh, in Ephesians, Paul tells us that God has called people to be uh, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. And I want you to understand, I'm going to explain something to you about me. I'm a prophet, okay? It's hard for me to, to explain the differences between all those things, but apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. I struggle to be a shepherd sometimes. I'm working on it, and I want to, and I love you guys, and I want you to know I'm there for you, okay? I struggle sometimes to even be a teacher, to make sense, to be congruent. I know you guys are sitting here like, yeah, we know. You're teaching us right now, and we're all lost, okay? <laughs> I don't struggle to be a prophet. For me, telling the truth is who I am. It's, who is in, it's what's ingrained in me. I, I know that I'm going to wear you out over time <laughs> sharing the truth with you, because sometimes it's hard. Okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share something here with you. This is just straight truth. This is 100% truth. Okay, this is not me you know, uh, beating around the bush or trying to give it to you in a different way. If you are serving the world, you are an enemy of God. You have two choices. You can't have both. You have one or the other. James forces us to choose. You are either an enemy of God or you're an enemy of the world. You're either serving God or you're serving the world. It's one of those two things. You cannot have both, and we try to do this. We try to nice our way into heaven, and we are so good at it. We're the best. The rest of the country says those people up there are the best at nicing them, their way into heaven. Right? We're the nicest people in the world. It's part of our brand. This is not going to be the kind of church that lets you nice your way into heaven. You can't nice your way into heaven. You can't be a good person and find your way into a relationship with a God who tells you the first thing you need to do is realize your own sin and realize your depravity and lay your life down and accept his. That is the only way, the only way. Jesus says, I am the only way. The only way is through submission to Christ. It is not saying I'm better than the guy next door or I'm better than the guy at work. And so I should get into heaven. That's not how that works. We can't nice our way into heaven. And this church cannot allow you to think that you're going there or that you're in relationship with Jesus just because you're a nice person. You are a nice person. I love you. You're great. You can watch my kids anytime you want. I mean that. We need a date. Come take our kids. <laughs> but that's not how this works. This is the, the essence of the gospel. See, it's... You're either with the world or you're with God. You're either taking your cues from the culture around you and from the people around you, the pressures that you see in the world, or you're taking your cues from God's word and through your relationship with Christ. It's one or the other. It's, you can't have both. And he forces the conversation by saying, if you are serving the world, you are an enemy of God. And I want to ask you the question, is that what you want? You want to be an enemy of God. Because that's what James tells us is happening. You cannot nice your way into heaven. Out of context, that's going to sound so weird. Here's what he says. 
And this is the beautiful thing. It all turns on this but. But he gives us more grace. This is why scripture says God opposes the proud and shows favor to the humble. He says, but if you would bring your entire life under the submission and the lordship of Jesus, you receive grace. You don't qualify. You're not good enough. You're not nice enough to to get God's approval. But if you receive the grace that comes through the person of Jesus, you are in. I think all of us, that's where we're at. That's what we need. And it's, it's amazing to me that that but changes everything. That God doesn't just give up on us. That he's just say, you know what, this person's just a lost cause, man. It's like I, I've, I've been thinking a lot about relationships and been talking with a lot of you guys lately. And, and there's certain situations where sometimes, even as your pastor, I feel hopeless. I have to struggle and fight and say, God, show me your vision for this person. Show me your vision for what's happening in this situation because I don't see it. I can't see where this is going. I don't see how this ends well. Show me that, that joy. Show me that, that future that you have for this person. I want you to understand, even when we give up on each other, Jesus never gives up on us. That there's always grace available. It doesn't matter what's going on in our life, how screwed up things are, how backwards everything is going, how uh, we feel like we're out of control. We feel like things are breaking all over the place. It doesn't matter. There's grace available to us if we would find the humility to receive that grace. We talked about wisdom last week. I don't need to hammer this again, but the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. It starts with humility. And if you don't choose humility, you will find humiliation. Your sin, your desires, your passions, the things that drive you away from God, those things will bring about humiliation in your life. You will find that lowly position, whether you choose to take it up yourself or whether you are driven to it because your life starts to fall apart based on the false wisdom of the world around us. So he says, submit yourselves then to God. He turns the corner. Now that you've received grace, now that you've understood where you stand with God, now I'm going to give you some practical stuff to do. And we race to this. A lot of us race to this because we just want to do stuff. We just want to do stuff. You have to, you have to become the person before you do the stuff. That's the, that's the order of this relationship with, with Jesus. You have to submit yourself first and become the person that he's called you to be and be square in your identity. Understand who you are in Christ. And then you start to do the stuff that comes along with it. So he says, submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Oh man, that's a good one. Hallmark card right there. So James gives us a couple of commands, right? He says, first, submit to God. We've talked about this. Humility is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of our relationship with God. It's the beginning of understanding we're not going to make it on our own and we can't do this thing in our own power. Submit to God. The second one, resist the enemy. And what does he say there? He says, resist the enemy and he'll flee. Okay, a lot of us don't even think there is an enemy. I want you to understand that. If you believe in the spiritual realm, you believe that there's a Holy Spirit, you believe in God, 
that there's also the flip side of that, that there is a spiritual realm that's happening outside of what you see that is against what God is doing and against you succeeding as a Christian and knowing Jesus. There's an enemy who wants to kill and steal and destroy, as Jesus puts it, that wants to see us not successful, not in relationship with Jesus and one another, not having peace and joy in our lives, not feeling fulfillment in how we are living and what God has called us to, not having bravery and courage that comes along with living in the world the way that God has called us to. He wants to take away those things. He wants to uh, create chaos and to ruin those things. And what James tells us is like literally the, the moment you resist, he flees. The moment he realizes that you're not an easy target anymore, he moves on to the next one, right? This is that, like, the idea of like this herd. And the, the weakest one that's at the back of the, of the herd is the one that the lion goes after. The lion's crouching in the weeds and looking for the sick, you know, person in the, 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 the sick antelope. I don't know, what, what, is he, what is he going after? Deer or something? He's looking for the sick one or the slow one or the one that's at the back of the herd. Guess what a church is? It's a group of people that put their strongest people at the back and protect the weak ones. We get together as a community and we say, look, we're going to do this together. We're going to protect each other from the enemy. We're going to get together in small groups. We're going to share what's going on in our lives. We're going to share that stuff. We're going to do this as a church. We're not going to have sickly or slow people hanging back, getting picked off by the enemy. And when the enemy realizes the first moment that that's not an easy thing to do to go grab somebody out of there, it just moves on to the next place. He's not interested in anything hard. He's interested in, in getting us in our weakest places where we are weak and haven't dealt with it and don't want to deal with it. So he's like, man, look at this thing that this person just won't deal with. Let me just continue to poke that spot. And the minute we start to resist the minute we start to take serious our relationship with God and, and, and serious the sin and the pleasures, the desires that we have in our life and start to fight those things, the minute we resist, he's gone. That's how it works. And then he says this incredible line, which like memorize this verse, right? He says, number three, draw near to God. And what happens? He'll draw near to you. What, in fact, you realize is that as you draw near to God, you're getting closer to him. He was always there. He's not moving. When you are feeling like you're getting further away from God, it's because you are moving further away from him. And when you draw near to him, he's in the same place. He just continues to be right there, ready to receive you back. And that's a promise that says when we're stuck, when we're, things are going wrong, when we're not sure where to go, like here's the promise, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And the last thing he tells us is to face our sin. He says, in fact, your sin should cause you to mourn and weep and wail. And I, I had to step back and ask myself this question too. And this is a challenging question. When was the last time that your sin caused you to weep or mourn or wail? When was the last time you felt the weight of your sin in such a way and realize the depth of your depravity that it caused you to change your life. Because that's what it takes for us. It takes us feeling that weight to be able to change and go in another direction. And if we're not willing to face our sin, then we're not really submitted to Jesus. Right? He wants to eradicate that stuff out of our life. He wants to give us freedom and victory. Honestly, as a, as a pastor, I work with a lot of people, a lot of different people. You know, and I had a couple weeks ago, somebody sit down with me and say, listen, I'm struggling with pornography and it's destroying my marriage. 
and I've shared this now with my wife, and now I'm sharing it with you as my pastor. Well, that's the first step. Somebody who felt the weight of their own sin finally decided to turn and go in the direction that God wanted them to go in. What is the sin in your life that you need to get out, needs to go? It's in the way of everything. I share that one because I think there's men in this room that probably haven't dealt with it or talked about it or faced it in years. I think there's other things that kill us, that we hide. Shame, right? Comparison. There's things in our lives that we need to face and we need to move on from. We need to confess to somebody. We need to bring to the feet of Jesus. We need to to break a cycle that's going on in our lives. And he says, if you submit to me, if you draw near to me, if you resist the devil, this is going to go in the direction that you want it to go in. And then he says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. And we spend all of our time trying to figure out how to lift ourselves up, and the way that we lift ourselves up is to find humility, because then Christ lifts us up. We don't do it in our own strength. We don't, it's not something that we can take pride in. It's not something that we, you know, we uh, feel like we've accomplished. It's something that God has done in our life. He will be the one to lift you up. And then he ends with this weird tag. And you're like, how does this, how's this go together, right? So he says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. You're like, wait, we're just talking about like this like, you know, uh, the conflict we have in our lives and this like heavy-duty sin that's going on and how we need to, you know, resist and draw near. What is, how does this, I don't, and you know, there's a little bit of wisdom literature feel to James where he kind of jumps around a little bit, but this actually does kind of fit in this section. And I, I, I struggle with whether to put it into a different week or whether to keep it here, and I think here's how it comes together. So he says, brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you're not keeping it, but you're sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? And so James has told us, right, like uh, what it looks like, what it looks like to have this relationship with Christ and to submit ourselves to him and to find this uh, place of looking in ourselves to, uh, to deal with the conflict in our lives. And in the beginning, if I had asked you the question, who brings quarrels and fights in your life, you would have said, they do. Now maybe you're questioning that, hopefully. Hopefully we've gotten somewhere and you're questioning that. You'd say, they do. He reminds us at the end, whose law are you breaking when you have quarrels and fights? Whose law is it that's actually getting tread upon? It's getting thrown away? That's getting, you know, uh, that's not honored? It's my law. You, you thought this was about them, and it's really about you. You think that you're owed something. No, I'm the one that's owed something. You think that People disrespect you, they break your law. You think that people should honor you, they break your law. People don't, you know, give you the credit. They, you know, like, hey man, I've been working my butt off at this, co- at this company. I just want somebody to pay attention and notice. I don't know if you guys know this, but I was here the first weekend we opened at this church, okay? So let's give me some respect. <laughs> right? Hey, I want everyone in this family to, you know, focus on me and to give me honor. He's saying, like, you think people are breaking your law when they disrespect you, when they create conflict, when they treat you a way that you don't want to be treated. He goes, they're not breaking your law. They're breaking my law. And you're not, you're not the one breaking their law. You're breaking my law. This eventually comes back to this idea that God is the one who gives us this law. 
right? And the law that we have in the New Testament is essentially to love the Lord Jesus with all of your heart, soul, and mind, to love your neighbor as yourself. And in fact, Jesus strengthens that before he goes to the cross, and he says, you should love one another the way I have loved you. That's his law. When we break it with each other, we're not just breaking our relationship. We're not just causing that law between the two of us. We're breaking that law with Christ. We're breaking that law with God. I want you to know that there's a personal application to all of this, that in your own life, things have gotten sideways and backwards and out of control, and you need to get the vehicle back on the road, so to speak. But there's also a corporate thing that happens here, right? Like, what kind of church is it where everyone in the church hasn't really dealt with their own sin and their own destructive habits and their own desires and their own passions? What happens? Well, somebody new comes into this church, and what do they, they look around and they just say, these people aren't transformed. There's nothing different about these people at all. I work with these people. I, they live in my neighborhood. There's nothing different between them and the rest of the world that I deal with. Like they should be walking into this church and be like, I don't get how these people are like this. How, how did this happen? What is going on here? I mean, they should be so drawn into a community of people who have been transformed by a relationship with Jesus that it should transform them and draw them into it. The effect should be that as we each individually move in our relationship with Christ and change and walk away from these habits that we have and, and, to, and to grow in who we are in Christ, that it should impact anyone who walks off the street and it should also spill out of this church and impact all the places that we go. That's what it looks like. You think like if you don't listen to what James says that your life will actually be off track? Yes, it will. But it will also affect this entire body of people. And in fact, we succeed. We see the kingdom grow. We see Jesus honored and lifted up when we all individually work on who we are in Christ. That's what it looks like. And it takes humility. Right? This is a through line in James's uh, book that humility is the beginning of all of it. It's for us to step back and say, my way doesn't work. It's not adding up to what I want. I can't do it on my own. I have sin in my life. I'm not that much better of a person than the people around me. right? And I need Christ. I need Christ. 100%, the thing that I need is to submit to him and to live in his, his way. Now go and do. Let me pray.